Welcome to a special two-part edition of Radio Cade. We'll be discussing COVID-19 and ventilators. In part one, we visit with Dr. Sam Lampotang, and in part two, we visit with Dr. Richard Milker. We hope you enjoy the program. Inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Welcome to a special episode of Radio Cade. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio. Today, we're going to be covering mechanical ventilation and its effect on the COVID-19 crisis. Mechanical ventilation is a life-saving therapy that is used extensively in modern intensive care units. The origins of modern mechanical ventilation can be traced back five centuries ago to the seminal work of Andreas Vesalius, really the founder of modern human anatomy. Joining the program now is Dr. Richard Milker. We just had him on the show very recently. He is the professor emeritus at the Department of Anesthesiology, the UF College of Medicine. We touched on ventilators last time you were with us, Dr. Milker. COVID-19 had not taken off yet like it is now. We want to talk with you about ventilators. I know you have a story about how you got interested in them. Welcome to the show and tell us a little bit about that story. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think using a chronological order will allow people to understand how we got to the sophisticated ventilators we have today and also as to why we don't have enough of them. So I uh, went to medical school and graduated in 1974 and did my residency in pediatrics at a hospital in Los Angeles called Harbor General Hospital. It's now called Harbor UCLA Medical Center, but most people would never recognize the name of the hospital, but the hospital had another name called Rampart General. And Rampart General was a hospital used in a TV show called Emergency. And back in the days when I was doing my residency at Harbor General Hospital, they were filming this show and using my hospital as where the patients were taken by ambulance. And I was doing my residency and realized that when the paramedics came in, they really had no understanding about children. So I went to the chairman of my department and I said, you know, Los Angeles County has one of the best EMS systems in the United States. It was one of 12 systems that was a paramedic system at the time. And I said, if I could spend some time with them, I would like to write some material that they could use for training paramedics on how to care for children. And my chairman was all for it. So every Friday, At 12 o'clock, I would leave the hospital and I would go to ride with the paramedics for the rest of the day. And the fire station that they were using on television was actually the fire station that I worked out of with the paramedics. And by the time I completed my residency and was ready to move to Florida, I had written a textbook, some information on how paramedics should care for children. 
And so I had filled a gap that one wouldn't think needed to be filled, but it was very clear that it was because this information was shared around the United States. So I came to the University of Florida in 1977 and I did a fellowship. And during that fellowship, which means I was already a licensed physician, and I spent two additional years doing pediatric cardiology and critical care medicine. And I was fortunate enough at the University of Florida to work in the critical care division with some of the most brilliant faculty who were developers of some of the original ventilators that were used both for adults and for children. And when I completed that fellowship, obviously I knew a lot more about ventilators than when I started, and I became the medical director of the Alachua County EMS system. And I started riding on the ambulance with the crews, or I would carry a radio and I would meet them at the scene of an accident or whatever the medical issue was. And what I realized was that on the way to the hospital, they were ventilating patients, and I'll describe ventilation in a moment. I'll define it for you. They were ventilating patients with what was called the demand valve. And basically, many of your listeners would be familiar with a lot of demand valves like scuba gear. When you want to take a breath, you breathe in and the valve gives you as much air, compressed air, as you need. And when you fill your lungs with air, then you exhale and the valve closes so that it's not wasting gas and you're only using the gas when you need it. Another example of a demand valve is a fireman where these face masks which have a demand valve built into them so that they can go into a fire and their faces are covered and they're breathing air from a cylinder. And so they're not breathing in all the toxic fumes and everything. So anyway, the demand valve that was used for all these other applications had been modified so that you could use it to ventilate a patient. So what are you trying to do when you have a patient who's not breathing on their own or breathing inadequately. What you're trying to do is to push gas into their lungs. And in order to do that, you have to use a pressure higher than the ambient pressure. So you push the button on the demand valve and it forces oxygen into their lungs. And when they exhale, out comes the carbon dioxide that's building up in their blood. So when you ventilate somebody, you give them oxygen under pressure, and then they usually passively, the lung recoils and out comes the carbon dioxide. So that's what a ventilator does. And a ventilator is different than a respirator. And the terminology right now is getting very confused. Respirators are devices that the user is breathing normally and either it filters the air or serves some other purpose, but it's driven by the normal breathing pattern of the patient who's using it. So when you and I are breathing, like while we're talking now, I take a breath in and the pressure inside my chest is lower than the sea level pressure that we're at 
and therefore gas goes into my lungs and that requires muscles, the respiratory muscles, for that gas to get into my lungs. The gas comes out when you stop breathing in because the chest wall and the muscles recoil and the gas comes out. So a respirator is a device where the user is breathing in and out. Now a ventilator is a device that does exactly the opposite. It, using positive pressure, forces gas into the lungs of the patient and then they exhale. So some people say you inhale and you exhale, and other people use the older terminology where you breathe in as inspiration, but unfortunately, when you breathe out, it's expiration. So you're expiring. And with what's going on now, and other terms, we went to inhalation and exhalation because of the poor connotation of the word expiring. So I'm now at the University of Florida and I am looking at these devices that the paramedics are using. And I was fortunate to have many colleagues, like I said earlier, who had a lot of background in the development of ventilators. As a matter of fact, some of our faculty helped develop the baby bird, which in early 1960s was the first ventilator designed specifically for neonates. And these people at the time were in the military and they developed the baby bird with a scientist and aviator by the name of Forest Bird. So anyway, one of my colleagues, a respiratory physiologist and I, went into the laboratory and studied how this demand valve that they were using on the ambulances worked. And what we found is that when you push the button, it would drive gas into the stomach because the resistance to the gas was lower into the stomach than it was into the lungs. And another problem with it is that it had a peak pressure because everybody was afraid of overpressurizing the lungs. So as you push the button and the pressure went up, the flow of gas would go down. And so it became very apparent that what was needed in what's called the pre-hospital arena or the military theater was a ventilator that worked just like the ventilators that we were using in the hospitals. And so with a number of colleagues and I, we developed and actually produced a number of portable ventilators, which are generically called transport ventilators. And so uh, we spent the next couple of years writing papers and doing the research and looking at different transport ventilators. And we like to believe that we helped advance the development of more and more sophisticated transport ventilators. So with regards to transport ventilators, we can look at this like other ventilators. Your innovation story from start to finish, you said was several years, correct? Correct. Okay. Where we are now with regards to ventilation, let's bridge these stories. And we just talked with Dr. Lampotang, and he was saying that the FDA, of course, is relaxing some restrictions that exist that I'm sure you were facing fully when creating your transport ventilator to allow for these new designs to come into play. 
So in the arena of ventilation, the question everyone is asking is why don't we have enough ventilators? There are academic studies that are from the early 2000s that suggest that in a surge situation, we won't have enough of them. Hospitals could not possibly afford to have all the $50,000 ventilators, but they could have cheaper solutions on hand in the event that this happens. So why do you think we haven't done that? And should we have even done that in the first place? Maybe we should have waited until we had an event. What are the answers, I guess, to these medical innovation questions when it comes to crisis, predictable crisis, maybe? Not really sure. So, as you've mentioned, the ventilators that are being used in the hospitals to care for these patients are extremely sophisticated. The permutations and combinations of settings on these ventilators are mind-boggling. And these are extremely expensive devices because they have electronics in them and they have a lot of other features. And they're made in relatively small numbers, as we have unfortunately become aware of. And so when we started working on transport ventilators, we actually had companies come to us that were contracted with the military to develop ventilators for use in the battlefield scenario. And I know of ventilators that some of those companies make for the military exclusively, which I am sure in the right patients would be more than adequate to ventilate them in the hospital. Now, one of the interesting things that we're learning, and most of this information is coming from Italy, because unfortunately they were severely hit by the virus and undermanned to care for the tremendous number of patients that they saw. But the lung injury that we're seeing with the COVID-19 virus is very different than the lung injuries that we normally use these highly sophisticated ventilators for. And I'm not doing clinical research anymore, but it would seem to me that because this lung injury is different and it doesn't require some of the high pressures and sophisticated techniques that are used in the intensive care units, that some of these ventilators would actually be excellent ventilators for the properly chosen patients. As a matter of fact, the doctors in Italy assumed that the lung injury was similar to what they had normally encountered during their practice. And they initially set up the ventilators so that they could treat these patients. And they found that the patients were doing very poorly so some very good scientists who were also clinicians did some studies using CT scanning and showed that when they set up the ventilator to ventilate these patients with the normal settings that they were using, they were overinflating the lungs. And what happens when you overinflate the lungs, your heart can't push blood through your lungs. And so one of the major findings that the Italians found, and obviously is now well known everywhere they're treating patients with COVID-19, is that you don't have to use what they call positive end expiratory pressure. In other words, you don't need a lot of pressure to keep the lung from collapsing. And as a matter of fact, had deleterious effects on the patients. Very interesting. I don't think I've seen even a single article yet that has talked about that in detail with regards to that, which to me immediately raises another question. In my professional life, I'm an investor, and all my years of studying have led me to believe that predicting things as humans is often a, a fool's errand. We think we know the solution to something. We say, here's variable A and variable B. 
variable C will be this, which then creates something called a, a three-body problem, for those of you listeners who enjoy things like that, where you really don't know what the third variable is going to be. So oftentimes in my life, I've found that reacting quickly tends to be the best way to handle something. What you're saying is interesting. Here's a different situation. Uh, although we could have predicted a surge event, maybe we would have spent a lot of money building ventilators that wouldn't necessarily worked. Or in your case, we actually already have ventilators that you're saying solve this problem. Now the question is producing them. So with your ventilator specifically, is it difficult to get the parts to make your ventilator now? If you had to mass produce your ventilator, could it be done or is there not enough supply of those parts? So there's several answers to your question. Number one, there are a couple of companies that have mass produced ventilators for the military. And I've not kept up with them. In other words, when they were developing those ventilators and wanted to know what features had to be in those ventilators for use by the military, that's where we were involved. But I've actually met with the president of the company a couple of years ago ago at a special forces meeting and they were selling ventilators like crazy to the military. And I personally believe that those ventilators have features in them that would make them more than adequate to care for many of the patients with COVID-19. So I don't know how many of those ventilators the military has stockpiled, but you asked the second question, which is equally as important. So these sophisticated ventilators and even these less sophisticated transport ventilators or field ventilators have lots of parts in them. And we can tell every company in the United States to start making ventilators, but there are only a certain number of the key parts for those ventilators. And so right now, and I've spoken to several people, in other words, there are chat rooms and a lot of different ways that I keep up with my colleagues who are still doing research on ventilators and parts has become a real problem. So I'll just give you one little anecdote. When I was at the University of Florida doing my fellowship, we wanted to transport patients from other facilities to our facility. And there was a brilliant respiratory therapist by the name of Paul Blanche. And he went and built a ventilator. And because it was a one-off, it did not have to go through FDA certification. We'll just skip that whole story. And he built a couple of Blanchelators and when the helicopter service came into being at the University of Florida, we would transport patients from other facilities to our facility using the Blanchelator. Now, the Blanchelator's a little box, you know, size of a shoebox. The ventilators that they're using in the hospitals weigh several hundred pounds and they're huge. And by now you've probably seen plenty of pictures of them. So the Blanchelator at our hospital was what we used to move patients from the operating room to the intensive care unit or from the intensive care unit to you have an MRI done because you can't bring an MRI machine up to the ICU or from the ICU to a CT scan. So our hospital had a blanchilator, a couple of them, for these unique transport situations. 
Well, it turns out that Paul's little ventilator was so good that he formed a company with a gentleman who had been involved in ventilator companies for his whole career. And they started manufacturing this ventilator and went through FDA approvals and everything. And they were selling and are selling a considerable number of these ventilators every year. But they've got an order from the government for 10 times that. So from one day where you've got all your parts and everything to build ventilators at the rate that your company is building them to suddenly have to make 10 times or 100 times that number of ventilators, where are the parts going to come from? Where are the components going to come from? And that has turned out to be part of the issue. So I don't personally believe telling General Motors to make ventilators is going to solve our problem because they have no inventory. What we need to do is have the companies that are making the ventilators maximize, you know, maybe go to three shifts a day, do whatever they have to do to make more ventilators. But it's getting the components into the companies to assemble into a ventilator. So you asked the key question, are we going to continue to make $20,000 ventilators, which after this is over, hopefully, are going to sit in storage somewhere? Or are we better off looking at some of these other ventilators that are not quite as sophisticated, but require less parts, FDA clearance is, is a lot simpler. And I don't really know the answer. When I heard about the ventilator shortage, I just started scratching my head and calling up my colleagues who still are either working with or consult with the companies that make the ventilators. And they said, the problem is parts. The problem isn't that there aren't people to make ventilators. The problem that they have identified is that everybody needs parts at the same time. And because these are expensive products and you only turn over a few ventilators a year in a hospital normally. In other words, over the past, I would say, decade or two, people have used ventilators a lot longer than they used to so that they don't have to buy this capital equipment, which is so expensive. So the one thing that I see missing or that I haven't heard about is who are the people looking at the alternatives to $25,000, $30,000 ventilators? Because I'm sure knowing friends of mine and colleagues who build ventilators that they don't have to be that sophisticated and understanding the underlying lung disease created by this virus would make me believe that you don't need quite that level of sophistication. Well, I think you're definitely articulating that correctly. Dr. Lampotang was telling us that his ventilator could probably get 60% of the capacity, the ability of, of the $50,000 ventilator, and it cost him $300 to make it. It's also rather disposable, right? The parts are 100 total dollars plus other stuff. So hospitals could just throw a part of it away and spend another 100 bucks to get another one. So you don't have to worry about issues when it comes to ventilator cleanliness or transmission of disease. Interesting stuff, but I think that raises the next question that you're touching on, which is complicated, and it has to do with supply and demand. So why 15 years ago did we not produce a lot of ventilators? Well, one, 
you still had the same supply and demand issue. You didn't have enough supply to make enough of these $50,000 ventilators. And two, what you said is also true. Hospitals can't simply outlay lots of capital to buy ventilators because for every ventilator they buy, that's something else they can't buy. They have to steward their funds correctly. And only in the event of a surge would you need even enough of these ventilators. And like we just talked about, you may not even need the Cadillac ventilator. So now what are we to do if there's no supply for the ventilators that we know how to make? What happens next? In comes someone like Dr. Lampotang. In comes someone like you and your story, noticing a need and then fixing that problem. Creativity, innovation come in. They take the place of what's going on. But sort of this rigid structure, hey, GM, hey, 3M, hey, go make these things. Seems great. Sounds good. But it's not really even possible, as you're mentioning. And I think the good news is, as you've said continually, especially from a medical perspective, there are other solutions. And these other solutions not only work in the U.S., but they can help people across the world that don't have the same resources we have to hopefully effectively treat their patients. And, and the transport piece I want to touch on now, because this is interesting, right? We know in New York City, we've got an issue. We have all these patients in ICUs and in hospitals. And if we have to get them from one hospital to the other one, and they're on ventilation, how do you get them there? In comes the transport device you're mentioning. If we have enough of these transport devices, Dr. Melkar, are we then able to help efficiently spread out our COVID-19 cases to get use of ICU beds in other maybe even states that aren't being utilized? Is that a realistic transportation alternative? The answer is clearly yes. The proviso is, can the companies that make those ventilators gear up quickly enough to dramatically increase the number of those ventilators that are available, or are they having the same heart problems that we are? A lot of our components aren't even made in the United States anymore, and we all know the story about why that's happening. Let me give you a little anecdote which always brought this to my attention. Right after 9-11, I was starting to work with a company up in Bowling Green, Kentucky, to make a detector for a drug that we use for anesthesia. And the original application of that detector was to detect nerve agents. So it was used by the military and developed by a brilliant scientist. And he formed his own company because he couldn't get anybody to fund it, so he built his own company. I mean, that's what you call entrepreneurship. So anyway, he was making these detectors for nerve agents for the military. After 9-11, he got called up by the military and was told every component that you need to make these 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so we can have them in the subway systems, we can have them anywhere where nerve agents might be used to kill Americans, you have priority for everything you need. And what he did was put together a list of the components and the companies that were making the components. He went to three shifts and within two months, he was shipping a hundred to a thousand times as many of these detector systems. And they're still running today in the New York subway system and all over the United States. So that's what the system is geared to do. 
During a warfare situation, the government can tell people who have components that are needed to protect the American people that they must supply those components for the good of the country. Indeed, and we saw that invoked multiple times this week, really, by the president with regards to the DOPA Act, right? Invoked on 3M, and whether or not you think it's good for the president to be able to have such a power or not, uh, something you're saying remains true, which again comes down to that law of supply and demand. And in your story, there were enough supplies to be able to ramp up. In the ventilator story, if there's not enough supplies, the beauty of entrepreneurship and human innovation is creativity allows us to tweak things or find alternatives alternative ways to do it, to get maybe almost all the way there and sometimes even improve the situation that we are in, which I think is just an interesting story of people, right? And that comes down to whether you think as a society, we should predict ahead of time what's going to happen, stockpile things, or you think, hey, we can very quickly respond to what's happening tactically And that's the most efficient way to do it. Those are obviously debates for a different style podcast. But I want to ask you a medical question. Obviously, you think about things. You are the director of EMS. You've run departments, hospitals. When this starts happening, COVID-19 comes on board. They're meeting. They're getting together. They have disaster plans. What if we have overflow? How much overflow do we have? Where can we send people in the event of a shortage? These are the type exercises that are being done by hospitals across the country, correct? Correct. And then in the event of an actual shortage, do you feel like the hospitals would be able to work with, let's like, let's take Gainesville here with private practices and say, well, you've got a certain bed we could turn into an ICU and Shans has double the surge capacity. Or do we feel that we still, even utilizing all of the available room space buildings we have, would not be able to handle a surge? Are we that deficient when it comes to facing something like COVID? Or is there a way to plan to be able to expand our capacity? So the United States has had repeated warnings that this was going to happen. We had SARS, and then we had the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and epidemiologists and the military have been telling our government this is just a matter of time. We lucked out with SARS. Ebola was kind of a different story. It killed people so fast that you had a ventilator the next day. But particularly the coronaviruses. And remember, we're not even talking about an attempt intentionally to harm the American people with a biological weapon. This was just a mutation that occurred in a virus which every year people would get upper respiratory infections with. But it mutated this time into a virus that we have absolutely no natural defenses for. So if you read what epidemiologists have written, the United States has not paid enough attention to this. And I know everyone wants to believe that we have the best healthcare system in the world. And that could be a debate for a show by itself. But we got caught with our pants down. We were very slow to react. We did not, and still today, have not on a national level done all the things that we have to do to minimize the loss of life. And I think there are people in the administration now who are going, people aren't listening to us. We, you and I, are sitting in the state of Florida, and our governor, our governor did not 
issue the orders and still it appears somebody has to twist his arm to get him to do anything. Now, I don't want to get into the political reasons for that, but when you have an epidemic like this, where days matter and accumulate down the line in deaths, every governor in the United States on the first day should have issued proclamations that people need to stay at home, social distancing, everything else. And the proof of it is that where that was done in the United States, we're going to have far fewer deaths than in areas of the United States where the governors waited. And to say on national television that you didn't know that there could be asymptomatic carriers of this disease after everything that all of us see every day in the news is beyond my comprehension. Well, you raise a lot of the current points that are going on right now. Obviously, why did we not prepare for this? Why are we slow to react to it? You can study the Spanish flu, right, influenza of 1918 to see that very much the same things happened. We have cities like St. Louis that instituted social distancing and actually largely avoided a lot of the significant deaths that other city at the time like New York didn't do. And then we have this one, which is different. The benefit of COVID is it's a lot less deadly for people without underlying conditions that are young. It's very, very deadly for those underlying conditions conditions. How do we respond? What do we do? But here is something, and for me, I I should full disclosure, I'm a very small government person. I believe in people taking care of what they can, reacting locally, reacting quickly. But I think you have to look at what the government spends money on and say what's important. You know, we've spent $1.5 trillion on a fighter jet program that is basically still defunct. $1.5 trillion. Yep. And I don't even agree with the idea of stockpiling things for the future because we can't predict the future. But at the very least, if you're going to take taxpayer dollars and spend it, you would think spending it on the health and welfare of your citizens would be a potentially important thing to do. And here we are, like you said, in this quagmire because it's a rope, right? If we pull too far in one to the rope, we're going to lose the economy. We're going to have a depression. You're going to have difficult things. And if you pull too far the other way, too many people are going to die. And we're stuck with this very difficult, complicated problem to solve. And now the question is, looking forward, what do we do? And I think what's interesting about today's discussion with you and Dr. Lampotang is obviously people, real people, you and I and others that have real expertises that can help are able to find solutions to these problems if we can empower them to solve them right now. And what you said is true, right? Every day we wait to react to what we now know is real is a day that we're wasting. And I think that maybe is the saddest narrative out of all of this is there's a lot of voices out there, but unless we're able to react to something quickly, unless unless cooler heads can prevail to address the problems, what are we left with? What do we do? Where do we go? So in your opinion, are we at a critical risk right now with hospital capacity? If we get surged, are we to the point to where where we wouldn't have alternatives or solutions to be able to treat people? Is it as bad as some people say it is? So I would say that in Gainesville, I can only speak about Shans, but Shans is prepared. In other words, we've had enough time in Gainesville to know what works and what doesn't work. So for instance, whoever was the first person who said, you know, we have all those anesthesia machines that have a ventilator in them. We can jury rig the anesthesia machine and turn it into a ventilator. Okay, well, if you have 26 ORs, you just got 26 ventilators. 
okay? And I'm not going to talk much about the issue of sharing one ventilator with more than one person because that's a quagmire. It's been tried. They tried it in Italy. They're trying it here. And as you know, the news reports what they're told. And by and large, most reporters, even reporters who focus on the healthcare field, are not going to have the level of sophistication to know which of these things are going to work and which ones aren't. But I'm scratching my head a lot and going, well, that wasn't a good decision. But if we talk about North Central Florida, I can tell you, because I get the emails every day, that Shans is prepared. I think South Florida, with the elderly population and so many people living in high rises, where the only way they can get up and down is in an elevator, which is basically just an incubator for the virus. I think South Florida is in huge trouble. And I believe that the time that we've lost is going to translate into a huge number of deaths. I mean, it's a horrible thing to say, and it's a horrible thing to even believe. But I was trying to put all of this into something that I could write for lay people to understand. And I think I'm correct. And if I'm wrong, somebody's going to let me know. But despite the fact that we have the First Amendment and we have the freedom of speech, if you yell fire in a movie theater and there isn't a fire and somebody gets injured, that's not covered. However, if there really is a fire in a movie theater and you run out and don't tell anybody else, don't pull the fire alarm, don't yell there's a fire, you have no liability. And so, you know, I'm thinking, well, what are we going to do to these governors who didn't respond appropriately to the threat, but you really can't because the fire's occurring and they didn't do anything about it. So when I was thinking of some way to put this into terms that people would understand, because there are so many people now who are fearful of the government, they're fearful of the information they're getting, they're getting mixed signals every single day in one news conference you can different people different speakers can contradict the person who spoke just before them how are the american people going to understand the seriousness of this and the fact that not only could they die but if they're young and relatively healthy they can be responsible for the deaths of many many people and never know it To me, it's just frustration. You wake up every morning and you go, oh my God, we're just not doing it right. We are not taking this seriously. We are so behind the eight ball and there are a million reasons why. And I think some of them are legitimate and I think a lot of them aren't legitimate, but that doesn't matter. The simple fact is we have, to a very large extent, created this scenario. A lot of things were said there that I think are echoing what a lot of other experts are saying. I want to ask you this. What do you make of having to deal with limited information, right? Because on one hand, you take information, we have the data. I'm looking right now at NYC Health's daily data summary on coronavirus deaths. And in New York City right now, we have 26 people that have died with no underlying health conditions. We have 1,400 that have died with underlying health conditions. If people look at the data and they say, well, I have no underlying health conditions, I'm safe, I should be out there developing herd immunity, while the at-risk 
risk patients should be isolated or staying away. What do you say to that solution? Or is that nonsense? And it doesn't matter what happens to economies or work life, we have to do this to save lives. Like, what's the scale? What I'm not hearing people tell me is, what's the scale? What percentage are we looking at if we isolate a certain part of the population versus everyone, 20%, 30%, 50%? What's the prudent course of action? I think I would hope, right? Most Americans want to do what's best for everyone. I want to do what's best for my neighbor and what's best for the world around me. How do we know what the right course of action is given maybe some of the difficulty of interpreting the data? What's the right move in your opinion? Okay. First of all, you're asking the question that is the most difficult to answer and the one that keeps me awake at night. But let's look at what happened in China and whether we believe their true statistics or we don't believe their statistics and we think they should have notified the world sooner, which I believe they should have. What they did to control deaths was quarantine. If you look at other countries, and we haven't talked about testing, and I think the biggest single failure of the United States healthcare system has been the screw up of telling people anybody can get a test anytime they want over two months ago, and today not even being able to do surveillance so we know how to answer the question that you just asked. But if you look at the countries, and they're not all dictatorships, or they're not all totalitarian, South Korea, because they tested and identified very quickly those patients with the virus and quarantined them, they have kept their death rate extremely low. Okay. Now, what did it take to do that? What rights did the South Koreans give up to do that? Not nearly as much as what we're going to give up having not done it. Singapore is a very interesting country, as anybody who's ever studied their uh, governmental system would know about. Singapore has also managed to have much better control over the spread of the virus. Now, the Philippines, they got a slightly different take on it. They're just going to shoot you. So we're not going there. But we do have examples of countries that have reacted quickly and, in my opinion, appropriately. And the key to everything was testing, knowing who had the virus and who didn't. Now, what you do once you have that information is the question you're answering. And I don't know the answer. But for a very short period of time in England, they decided that they were going to go with the herd immunity way of dealing with this. And they very quickly gave that up. And they're in big trouble now. So I think the big problem with the herd immunity solution is that not only are we going to wipe out the elderly population, and I can see a lot of younger people going, well, that's Medicare, that's all the things that I didn't want to pay for anyway. But the reality is that younger people are dying as well. And I don't think people appreciate the fact that what we call elderly today isn't that elderly. I was thinking the last couple of days, because I'm in my 70s now, but if I died 10 years ago from whatever cause, what technology I developed after that that's being used like crazy now would never have been developed. And so I don't know the answer to your question, but I just in my gut have this feeling that 
that the herd immunity solution isn't going to work. It sounds like a good idea. Now, there's a piece of news that came out today, which obviously your listeners won't hear today, but it's very interesting information from Scripps Institute in California. And what they did is they got an individual who had the original SARS coronavirus back in 2002. And they took the blood from that person and they found that that person still could have immunity to coronavirus and that the antibodies in the blood of that person actually worked against the new novel virus. Now, if that pans out, that means we may have, because the antibodies are so similar and we now have the capacity to replicate antibodies very quickly, we have the potential, maybe, of getting to a, quote, vaccination very quickly. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of differences between using an antibody that's already developed versus most vaccines are either killed or attenuated bacteria or viruses or organism that you're trying to develop immunity against. But it's really exciting to me that somebody who had the original SARS still has immunity. 18 years later, that's a pretty good vaccine. Yeah, I'd say so, right? And this is SARS-2, something that I think yeah, has gotten lost exactly. from this. Yeah, I don't think people realize that the original name was SARS-CoV-2. <laughs> We've seen this picture. Right, we got a glimpse and it didn't, as you mentioned, get right. and we have, transmitted and as far. We, the messenger came and we shot we did. And I think what's interesting is the conclusion for me is the data, right? If you talk about innovation, you talk about entrepreneurship, you talk about moving humanity forward, that always has to come from good data. You can't improve something unless you understand how something works and why it works and why maybe it could work better. And I think that's the big problem that we have, as you said, is without the data, the thesis of, hey, let's let the younger people go out. It looks like healthy young people aren't dying. Let's send them out into the world could be a good one. The thesis of keeping everyone apart from each other could be the best one. The real problem is, like you said, what do you do when you don't know? And that's where I think you see this middling response. And certainly it's something we actively could have done much, much better was to figure out who has it, who doesn't have it, give clear messaging to those that have it to stay away. We dropped the ball on that. Something you mentioned will be on our next episode. We are going to talk all about vaccines and vaccinations, which is obviously the big solution to this problem as far as mitigating the top end risk. And obviously, Dr. Melker, thank you for joining us today. Great discussion on a wide range of topics. We appreciate your efforts in the field of medicine as well as in the field of ventilators. We know that your expertise has been very helpful and hopefully will continue to help those as we go through this. Thank you for joining us on the program today. It's been fantastic. I enjoyed it also, and I hope that we move forward more quickly to resolve these issues. Thank you again. For Radio Cade, I'm James DiVirgilio. Radio Cade is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. This podcast episode's host was James DiVirgilio, and Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hardwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radio Cade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson.